earlier this year watching the Super Bowl with a bunch of friends, and it's New England and Atlanta, and, uh, and uh, New England is way down. And I'm not a Tom Brady fan. I usually I, I pull for the New York Giants, but you can't hate on Tom Brady. The, the guy is a bit of a, a specimen as far as football is concerned. And the game was a wash, and my boys went upstairs, and they were playing with their friends. And then all of a sudden, Brady starts making this historic comeback. And it gets to, and it ties the game. And I, and I find myself running to the stairs, and I'm like, guys, come down. you got to watch this. This is crazy. And, of course, he goes on and, and uh, wins the Super Bowl. Now, Tom Brady has ten Super Bowl records. He's won five Super Bowl rings. He's appeared in seven Super Bowls, and he's arguably the greatest quarterback that's ever played the game. But 12 years ago, he was in an interview with ESPN, and a guy named uh, Steve Croft was interviewing him. And at the time, Tom Brady had three Super Bowl rings. He was only 30 years old, which at that time was still unbelievable by historic NFL standards. And, and Tom Brady said something very honest, very transparent, very shocking. And I'm going to read for you what he said, and this is what he said. He said, and the context was his drive and his passion and his desire to win. This is what he says. I don't think my mind allows me to rest ever. I have, I think, a chip on my shoulder and some deep scars that I don't think are healed. I, don't, I didn't think that success would come with all this other baggage. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and I think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, it's, there's got to be something greater than this. And Steve Croft says to Brady, well, what's the answer? Brady's response is, I wish I knew. I just thought that was so honest. Uh, his constant drive behind all of his work, um, this thing deep down inside of meeting that next ring. Today, we're going to continue our study in the book of Genesis on God's grace from the beginning. And we're going to look this morning at Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read a couple of verses. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 3, 7 and 8 and 15. And we're going to look this morning at Genesis at, this, at work. And the reason we're going to look at it is because, like Tom Brady, all of us in the deepest part of our souls have this unrest when it comes to work. And this morning when I talk about work, I don't mean your vocation. It does include your vocation, but I'm talking about all of our effort, the exertion of our gifts, our looking deep down inside us and desiring to use kind of these God-given talents and abilities or looking for an outlet for them, and all of the stress and frustration that there is associated with those things. We're going to look at that uh, this morning. Because in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see God's design for ultimate fulfillment before sin enters the picture. So there's a lot to be learned when we look at the world uh, pre-sin, pre-brokenness, pre-fallenness. And so what we find as we look at this is we find how we were designed to relate to the world, to one another, and to God before sin came in. And we find that humanity was intended to flourish in a rhythm, this beautiful rhythm of fulfilling work and soulful rest as worshipers in a vibrant relationship to God. But that God-given rhythm has been disordered by sin. And the good news this morning is that that God-given rhythm is reordered by grace. And so we want to take a look at this from Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to start reading verses 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, 
and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. This is God's word. Now what Genesis does is it gives us an overview of all of creation, and then it's almost like in the next scene it zooms in and it retells it again uh, with a close-up lens. So God finishes all of creation, and then we zoom in and we see what's God created man uh, for and to do, and that's the text that we just wrote, uh, that we just read. So here's today's sermon in a sentence. It's this. It's that our philosophy of work is informed by the actions of God. Our motivation for work is liberated by the grace of God. And our enjoyment of work is rooted in the rest of God. These three things. Our philosophy of work, how our work is liberated, and how our work is actually enjoyed. And we're going to see that at the center and the core of all of it, it is this great rest, this rhythm of rest in God. So first, let's look at our philosophy of work. It's informed by the actions of God. And again, I don't mean the job you're going to tomorrow, although it includes that. I'm talking about everything inside you that God put there to be used. Now, in verses 1 to 3, uh, we find that God finished his work. And by ancient standards, that's a pretty radical statement. So I just want to give you a picture of how amazing this is, because in the Hebrew language, this language was meant to be heard. And so what, what that what those first listeners would have been hearing was something really different than all the other gods they were accustomed to. So I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to go from the east to the west, and I'm going to show you how uh, our God of creation of the gospel goes right down the middle with this beautiful, uh, th- this beautiful revelation of, of who he is and how we think about work. So in the east, you've got this uh, Babylonian creation myths called the, uh, uh, called the Enuma Elish. And in the Enuma Elish, they tell the story of how the god of Marduk kills the god of Tiamat, and then Marduk wants to take the dead uh, corpse of this god and create the world out of it. This is the, this is the creation myth. And, but rather than going and doing the crea- creating himself, this is what the god says, and I'll quote this. This is from tablet number five of this ancient text. This is 1100 BC. This is long, this is ancient. This is, what, uh, it, it, this is how it reads. I will create a lowly primitive creature called man, and he shall be charged with the labor so that the gods may rest. He, gods don't work. I'm going to create man so that man works so that the gods can rest. Because work is menial. Work is, you want to get away from work. Work is something you're trying to escape from. It's not good. That's the, that's the Eastern view. Of, work, of manual labor and getting in the dirt. The, the gods don't do that. Now let's go all the way to the east now. So we went from 1100 BC, the uh, Anuma Elish of the Babylonian creation myths. Now let's go all the way from the east to the west. And now we're in uh, 350 BC. Aristotle writes a series of uh, 10 books called, on politics called Politics. And as you know, Western thought here has been greatly influenced by... Uh, Uh, Greek philosophical thought, not just politically, but socially. So how do we think about work? It's been greatly influenced thousands of years from ancient Greece. So here Aristotle writes in his book, book number one on politics, and here's what he says. He says, the status of a person who does manual labor was not considered nearly as virtuous as the intellectuals and the politicians. 
not nearly as virtuous. I'm going to read the quote for you. This is what he says in book one. He says, The slave is serviceable for the mere necessities of life, so that clearly he needs only a small amount of virtue. In fact, just enough to prevent him from failing at his own tasks. So you see, in the East, the gods don't do work because the work is, work is lowly. Yeah, it's not below the gods. And in the West, you don't want to do that kind of manual work because that's not very virtuous. And here you've got in Genesis 2, our God is, uh, stands against both of these views, shows that work isn't menial at all. And it's not mundane at all. Our God, in chapter 2 and verse 7, our God formed man from the dirt and breathed his breath into man. You know what? That invites the listeners to imagine God with dirt under his fingernails. It's a very different picture of God. You've got this, gods don't work, and our God has dirt under his fingernails. What does that teach us? That our God isn't just transcendent over all of creation, somehow far in the cosmos, who spun the world into being and is now far away transcendent. Our God, the Christian God, is transcendent and imminent. He's transcendent over all creation, but he went down in the dirt of creation. And he breathed into the dirt of creation. Our God is with us. Our God is close to us. Our God is personal. And we've got this picture of what kind of a God is this? Instead of staying out of the dirt, he formed us from the dirt. Our God says, it's not that the soul is good and the, and the soil is bad. Our God says, the soul is good and the soil is good. We're not Gnostics. We're not trying to escape the material world into the spiritual. But rather, God's grace is perfecting the material. That's the trajectory of Scripture. So the beauty of God's grace for you and I, as those who have received His grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ and are now resting in it, is that we're in this restorative uh, trajectory towards what God had created actually in the, be- in the beginning, what He wanted to be happening actually uh, in the beginning. So then in 2.15, God plants a garden and He puts Adam in the garden to work, to tend and work to keep the garden. What, what do we learn from this? What does this show us? It shows that God's original design, the OG plan, was that Adam's work had dignity. What we learn from this is that everything God did, everything God created, was an outward expression of love. So the context, the philosophy of work, is that it's all supposed to be this outward expression of love. The way that our city should be operating is that all of the work and everything that we're doing is this outward expression. See, that's why God created the world in the first place. He wasn't needy. He wasn't lonely. The OG plan for work wasn't that we did our work because we were needy and lonely, but we actually, it's an outward expression of love. That's, that's the OG plan for work in the beginning. And so in the same way that God's work was outward and Adam's work was supposed to be outward in loving service, right? Tend and keep the garden and allow humanity to flourish. All of our work is supposed to be outward, enabling our family and our children and the city to flourish. This was the original plan. And we see this picture. And in, and in Genesis 1.26, it says we were created in God's image and in his likeness. So all of our work is supposed to be a bit of a reflection of God's work. It's like when, when you're at the lake or you're at the cottage and the water is very still. And you can see in the water the clouds and the sun. It's not the actual clouds and the sun, but it's reflecting the clouds and the sun. God created everything from nothing. We are creators. Not in the same way that God has created. We don't speak things and create things in existence like God. We can't do that. But the work that we do, it reflects the greatness and the creation of God. So in other words, God created everything from nothing. God ordered everything from nothing. 
and we order what God created. That's actually the, that's the original enjoyment and fulfillment of work. I'll explain it this way. All humans have an innate desire to use their gifts in some way to bring order to creation. God put it in us. I'll give you, an exa- I'll give you some examples. Musicians put order to the notes, right? And the tempo and the scales. Musicians put notes in order to move the soul. Storytellers put visuals and plot lines in order that engage the imagination. Artists put des- put, uh, and designers, they put images and colors and textures in order to appeal to our senses. Writers put thoughts in order in a way that stimulates the mind and, and engages our hearts. Business people, they put systems and teams and people in order to provide goods and services that benefit the city. Counselors, they ask questions in order and they offer wisdom to bring order to disordered patterns of thinking and behavior. Teachers put lessons in order to train our children. Parents put routines in order so that children can grow and mature. Doctors put bodies in order. Cleaning puts our living spaces in order. Stylists put your hair in order. Maybe not Brad, but they put your hair. Stylists put your hair in order. Landscaping puts property in order. See, our philosophy of work not just the, the career going to tomorrow, but work, all work, everything inside you, the original, it's informed by the actions of God. God created order from nothing, and we order what God created. And that was the original plan for the beautiful flourishing and fulfillment of, of, uh, of, of all of mankind and of, of our work before God in loving creation in this rhythm of work and rest. And you're probably sitting here thinking, well, this all sounds great, but that's not my experience of work at all. In fact, work is not fulfilling. Uh, work is frustrating. And the more you talk about using gifts and abilities and potential and latent, da, da, I mean, none of that is invigorating. It's, I, I don't feel invigorated by that conversation. I feel inadequate. And of course, we feel inadequate and not invigorated when we talk about using our gifts and our abilities. And of course, we feel frustrated often and, and not fulfilled when we talk about vocation because all of this went horribly wrong. I'm giving you the OG picture of work. But it's, it's all gone wrong. It's all gone awry. Sin of man broke everything. It alienated us from God. It alienated us from nature. It alienated us from each other. And sin alienated us from ourselves. What does that mean? So psychologically... You see, we were created to use our gifts from a sense of identity. We were never meant to use our gifts to create our sense of identity. We were supposed to use our gifts and our work and flourish from a sense of acceptance. We were never intended to use our gifts and our, and our skills and abilities for a sense of acceptance. But because of the fall of man and because of sin, all of us have to now curate the sense of identity curate the sense of rest and how do we do that how do we feel meaningful how do we wake up every day and feel like i'm somebody i matter we do it through work not just our vocation work but all of our work that's what we end up doing stephen j gould is an evolutionary biologist he's one of the most influential and widely read uh, scientists uh, uh, writers of pop popular science in his generation And he was quoted in a book called The Meaning of Life back in 2007, and this is what Gould said. He said, we are here because one odd group of fishes had a particular fin anatomy that it could transform into legs. 
We are here because Comet struck the Earth and it wiped out the dinosaurs, thereby giving mammals a chance that otherwise wouldn't have been available. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. We cannot read the meaning of life passively into the facts of nature. We must construct these answers for ourselves. Now, if the evolutionary uh, biologist got it right, and that's true, and there is no higher answer, and we must construct the answer for ourselves, if there is no creator who gave us a sense of meaning, who gave us a sense of dignity, who intrinsically gave us a sense of identity, then we have to create those things. He's right. And how are we going to create them? Work. So now our education defines us, or our lack of education defines us, or our career defines us, or our lack of career defines us, or how many people uh, you know, like our lives on social media defines us, or our Pinterest, per- our Pinterest perfect house defines us, or our sense of fashion defines us, or how healthy we are defines us, or the next toy we can buy defines us. Or our Christian disciplines define us, and how spiritually mature we are defines us, and how much we know the Bible defines us, and how big our churches are defines us, and the attendance defines us, and how many people are downloading my sermon or listening to this live stream right now is defining me, or how many people are reading the articles that I read define me. I mean, I'm not very, I have, I wish I had more authority to preach this section of the sermon, but I don't, because I am, I struggle with trying to curate my own sense of identity, just like all of us do through our work, because it's gone horribly wrong, and sin causes us uh, to be in this fragile place, where if anything goes wrong with our work, our identity's on the line, right? It's, it's the summer's going to be here, and then you guys are going to go, and you're going to be doing your thing with your family and enjoying it, and that's a very beautiful thing. And I wish I could tell you that if I showed up on a Sunday, and there were only six people here, because the rest of you were all enjoying a well-deserved break with your families, I wish I could tell you that wouldn't play into my psyche. But the truth is, because of the brokenness of sin and the brokenness of this world and how much we tie our identity to our work, that if I came in here and there were six people in here, I would would be preaching with a constant commentary in my head. Maybe I did something wrong. Well, maybe I'm not a very very good preacher. Well, maybe I offended somebody. Well, maybe they... I mean, we do this. This This is the stress that's come... From the brokenness of sin because it's, uh, because it's, it's taken this work and it's disordered all of it. It's disordered it if we're you know, curators of our own identity. Nothing is ever enough. There's none of those things are ever enough. And this is the problem of setting up these little idols because uh, they crush us because they can't fulfill us. Nobody can. And we crush them with our expectations. And so I've got good news. You see, work in its original context... It was supposed to be the means by which, we, by which we expressed our uniqueness. It was never supposed to be the means by which we proved our value. And the good news of the gospel is it is renewing and restoring our hearts so that proving our value is increasingly fading away and expressing our uniqueness and loving others and, and it being an outward expression of who, who God is uh, is increasingly what our work ends up looking like. So that's where we get our philosophy of work from. From, from originally from what God intended it, for it to be, expression and not earning. So let's move on. Our motivation for work is actually liberated by the grace of God. We get our philosophy from the actions of God, but now it's all being liberated by the grace of God. There's this rhythm of rest. In chapter 2, 
it, it starts out by, I just read it, it starts out by saying that God finished all of his work and he rested. And on the seventh day, God had this Sabbath, this rest, this peace. Peace isn't just the absence of conflict. The Shabbat rest in the Old Testament, it meant wholeness, completeness. It meant harmony. That's what God is re- restoring in us through Christ. But the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ, it rescues us from the exhaustion of defining ourselves through our work, and it liberates us to enjoy simple, peaceful lives because our identity is in God's great work. He created us, and he recreates us. So that's why when Brady was saying, there's got to be something else, there's got to be another Super Bowl ring, he was being very honest, it's very true, because he was identifying it's not about the money. It's not about even winning. It's not about the work. There's work under the work that I can't seem to stop doing. And the good news of the gospel for you and I is that it's, it is rescues us from the work that's under the work. Not just the activity of what we're up to, but the thing underneath it that says it's still not enough. I'm still not enough. I'm still not sure I make the cut. I'm still not sure that I'm, I'm valuable. It liberates us from the work under the work, the need to justify ourselves. In the 1980s film, Chariots of Fire, there's this, there's this great scene. It's a story of these two young runners who are getting ready for the 1924 Olympics in Paris. And one of the, uh, the guys, his name, uh, one of the main uh, characters, his name is Harold Abrams. And he's talking about running this race, and he says, Soon I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down the corridor, four feet wide, with ten lonely seconds to justify my existence. But will I? It's brilliant. He saw it like, I got 10 seconds to justify my existence. What justifies your existence? What's that one thing that if you had it, you'd be like, okay, now, now my life matters? Who's that one person that if they gave you validation, then you'd be like, okay, now I can have peace? What is that one thing for all of us? See, we all have those things that we can kind of fall back into in order to justify ourselves. And the good news is that the gospel frees us and liberates us from that kind of justification needing to justify ourselves through our work, through what we're up to. Jesus lived the perfect life none of us could live. And then he died this atoning death that all of us deserve to die, but we won't, death will not be final because Christ died that death and resurrected, giving us hope of renewal and restoration. And so now being on the other side of the gospel, united to Christ and united to that life flow, we have a completely different view of what we're doing day to day. It's not like Stephen Gould, whereby it's like, well, you better create meaning and identity for yourself because you're just a speck in all of eternity that one day you're going to be gone and there's going to be oceans of time after you're gone and it's all meaningless anyways. I don't think he got it right. I think we were created by this creator God and Jesus, and God came in Jesus Christ and is, is now offering this great grace to us to not only save our souls so that one day there's heaven. That's not, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not cross your fingers and just wait for, wait for the return of Christ, and I know it's terrible now, but oh well. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that God is returning to restore all things. Grace isn't doing away with the material. Grace is perfecting the material. And between now and that perfection is this beautiful renewal in grace in our hearts where we can not be defined by this work. The gospel provides rest for our soul. So if we get our philosophy of work from the actions of God, and we are being liberated by the grace of God. Let's move on to the final thing this morning, which is our enjoyment of work, which was, which was the original plan. 
that it was in, that it was fulfilling and not frustrating, that it was invigorating and you know and not infuriating. Our enjoyment of that work is rooted in something. It's rooted in rest. It's rooted in the rest of God. Have you ever woke up tired? Right? You've, you've slept all night, but you wake up and you're tired. Right? Susan's like, yeah, all the time. Stop snoring. Right? You wake up tired. Well, you know, because the length, it's, it's not the length of sleep, but the depth of sleep. We know this, right? REM sleep, the rapid eye movement. It's like if you can get the depths of sleep, you wake up refreshed. If you can't get the depths of sleep, then you're not refreshed. You see, without Christ, your soul wakes up tired. If you are not united to the creator of the universe by grace and faith alone in Christ, your soul is waking up tired. And the only way for, you know, if, if you don't rest in the grace of Christ, you will try and stand in the cross-shaped hole in your soul with your work to justify yourself and to create yourself and to create identity for yourself and meaning for yourself. And it's exhaustive. And there's no end to it. Because if our sense of identity and meaning is rooted in what we're up to, it's always, it's always, a th- it's always being threatened. The economy is threatening our identity. Our bodies and our health is threatening our sense of identity. The choices that other people make that we didn't make, but they affect that affects our identity. The things that our children can do that you know, we wish that they wouldn't do, but they do, that can affect our identity. I mean, all, it's also fragile if it's rooted in all of these other things. And the gospel liberates us with this great REM rest of the soul so that we're not chasing our next Super Bowl ring constantly. And this rest is not just inactivity. This Sabbath rest, keeping the Sabbath is not just about inactivity. Keeping the Sabbath is not about just doing nothing on Sunday. Let's just go after this sacred cow here. Well, let's just talk about this. Because we can, we can be inactive on the outside and have souls that are raging like tornadoes on the inside. See, the peace, the Shabbat, the rest of God, is that there is a wholeness and a completeness and a harmony... Even though all hell is breaking loose and the you-know-what is hitting the fan, I have the Shabbat of God. I'm at peace. It's not the activity. You can, you can say, it's Sunday, it's the Sabbath, everybody sit still and do nothing. You're not keeping the Sabbath if your soul is raging like a tornado. Let's keep going. We can spend all Sunday in spiritual disciplines, right? Some of you good Presbyterians have read the Westminster Confession of Faith and read, you know, the Lord's Day 4. You can read that and be like, okay, that's a long checklist of spiritual disciplines, and all of them in in and of themselves are very good. But, you know, you can spend all day banging off that checklist and never enter Sabbath rest. If the whole time you're banging off the spiritual disciplines, really what's motivating and driving them is, I hope this is enough. I hope that God will accept me. I hope he looks down and sees that I'm pious. I hope that my righteousness is, I think I'm keeping the Sabbath better than you because I am doing, you know, I am reading the catechism and you're watching NFL football. I'm a better Christian than you are. You're not keeping the Sabbath. How is, how is, how is living in spiritual comparison keeping the Sabbath? None of this is keeping the Sabbath. See, our work is rooted in the rest of God. So, just to be clear, so that I'm, I won't need to qualify this, I'm not diminishing spiritual discipline. I'm reordering it. I'm reordering it so that it's like the spiritual discipline comes from joy and rest. This is the rhythm from the beginning of work and rest. And it flows from this rest. It flows from this peace. 
And so the reason why the Sabbath rest is called holy in verse, uh, chapter 2 and verse 3, it's called holy because it's a gift that God provides. It's not a legalistic burden that we accomplish. We don't accomplish the Sabbath. We enjoy the Sabbath. We rest in what God has done. When the Bible repeats things, it's supposed to catch our attention. Ancient Hebrew, they're writing on scrolls. They don't want to waste paper. Okay, right? Some of you, you got kids, they draw a little picture in the corner and they go, oh, that's not very good. They throw it out, they grab another piece of paper. What do you all say as parents? Hey, whoa, 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 don't waste the paper. Come on, use all the paper. Have you seen ancient uh, documents? They use all the paper, man. They use all the paper to the margins and to the top. They fill it up. They're like, we're not gonna, we're not gonna waste paper with punctuation. <laughs> we're just gonna put cute little endings on the end of each word so that everybody knows when the one word stops and the next word begins. That's what we're up to. What? They're like, don't waste paper. So when the Bible repeats something three times in a row, that should, that should make us be like, hmm. So let me just remind you what I just read that's repeated three times in a row. Verse, chapter 2 and verse 1. Everything is finished. Chapter 2, verse 2. Everything is finished. Chapter 2 and verse 3. Everything is finished. Does that remind you of anything? Does that remind you of another time in the Bible when God declared that everything was finished? You see, in the beginning, God enjoyed the rest of celebration. And at the cross, God suffered the rest of disgrace. In the beginning, the God of creation, He celebrated over us. And at the cross, the God of creation rested in a tomb to redeem us. See, the first time God rested, it was because he had a reason to celebrate. And the second time God rested in the tomb, he was giving us a reason to celebrate. So from the beginning of the whole story, he's anticipating the rest that he's bringing and giving to you. This great Sabbath rest, this great rest of identity, rest of peace, rest of purpose. You're not defined by what you're doing or what you're not doing or the career that you have or that you don't have or the gifts that you feel that are being used or are not being used. None of that is a commentary on who you are. All of that is a commentary on God's great love and whose you are. This is the gospel that liberates us from seeking our identity in our work, and it reorients us back to getting our philosophy of work from the actions of God so that we actually enjoy our work from rest because our souls are in REM. And now whatever you're up to tomorrow, it's not a commentary on your value. It's not a commentary on your meaning. It's not a commentary on your... It's now, praise Jesus, work is about work and not about you. This is what the gospel has done. This is why we enjoy the Sabbath rest today with our family and our friends. That's why you get to go home today and sit on your deck or whatever you're up to and rest. Yes, it's finished, it's finished, it's finished. It's true. The work of the Spirit in you to recalibrate and reorient your heart back to your Creator. That's the glorious rest. That's the message we want to teach our children as they're growing in this world of commentary about identity that is 
intrinsically connected to what they do, and we say, no, no, it isn't. Not. You're being invited into rest. Good news, church. The Lord of creation is the Lord of rest. He gives peace and wholeness and the completeness that our souls are craving. The REM soul rest of God is for all those who will turn from the self-salvation of defining themselves by their own work and find identity by resting in the salvation of Christ's perfect work. The gospel reorients our hearts and sets us free. Christ's life and death and resurrection that through faith and grace united to him, finally, your work is not about you. Your work is about work. Our philosophy of work is informed by the actions of God. Our motivation for our work is liberated by the grace of God and our enjoyment of work is rooted in the rest of God. Let's pray.